Joining me now to uh, talk about speeches, how important they are, and what makes a great speech is Tony Wilson himself, a great and successful author, and also a collector of speeches. He has a fantastic website called Speakola, and on it are archived some of the great speeches in history, and the ones you may have missed at funerals, at weddings, that sort of thing. So if you know of anybody who's given a great speech and you have the notes read, Tony wants to hear from you. Good afternoon, Tony Wilson. Good afternoon. One of the many Tonys featuring after the news. Uh, we're full of Tonys <laughs> and full of speeches. That's, we are. There's a Tardio and there's a Moclair and now a Wilson. Um, I'm not sure if you caught the speech uh, last night, Tony, but if you didn't, here is a flavour of it from Married at First Sight. I was not surprised when I heard Tim was partaking in this experiment because Tim is a man of science. <laughs> Experiment 552. Is it okay to get in the ER since you crash your car and you're here now anyway? <laughs> the comments about on the road is disgusting. Thank you. And I, I think that faint praise was quite fitting, Tony. Um, what, what? Faint, you set me. I, I hadn't seen one second of math in my life. And now, now I've been to the Channel 9 website and I've broken my duck and that's what you set me? My goodness. It was um, appalling, 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 appalling. Welcome back to Speakola in 2024. It's year four. We're in the 50-somethings in terms of episodes, and the idea of the Speakola podcast is to speak to a speaker, then play the speech. Well, sometimes it's not the speaker. Sometimes it's the appreciator, historians, audience members. We try to get to the bottom of speeches, why they work, the historical moment they represent. And this week, our special guest is Jules Schiller. He delivered a best man speech. He delivered it many years ago in 2003, 21 years ago, in fact, and it was for his great comedy friend and life friend, Tony Moclair. Both Julian and Tony started out in comedy together. They were on Triple R not long before I was on Triple R, and then they graduated to the big time. They went to Triple M, did many years on commercial radio, and nowadays, both are sliding onto the AM dial, as sometimes happens when you're in your 50s. Tony Moclair, he's at 3AW. Julian Schiller, he is at ABC Adelaide Breakfast. But the speech itself remains a classic, one of my all-time favourite best man speeches on Speakola. And I got talking about it recently because on Tony Moclair's afternoon show, he invited me on to discuss the abomination that was a best man speech on Married at First Sight. I don't have to say too much about it. If you know it, you know it. It was delivered by a guy called Ben. Barbershop Ben, I call him. Very shaved on the sides. A lot of action on top. And so I was on 3AW talking to Tony Moclair about what makes a great best man speech. And of course, his great best man speech delivered for him by Julian Schiller came to mind and I thought I'm going to get Jules on and so I did. Thanks to everyone who is financially supporting Speakola. Some are doing it through Patreon, some are on the substack news.speakola.com. It's just $50 a year and it gives me that little financial encouragement to keep the thing going, to keep finding guests, to keep editing episodes, to keep sending newsletters. News.speakola.com We shall fight on the beaches. We 
shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Well, welcome to Speakola. A man who's been a big supporter of Speakola. He's got me on radio over there in Adelaide several times, and it's much appreciated whenever you do, Jules. Thanks for coming on. Tony Wilson, it is a delight to be on your podcast. Of course, we talk about speeches on this show, and I'm getting you on to talk about your best man speech for your old comedy partner in crime, the man you got started with. Tony Moclair. And Tony got me on 3AW. You may know the station over here, Jules. Mm, it's yes. Mainly um, people shouting and Tony know it encouraging well. them with yes. the kerosene. Tony uh, and Tom uh, Elliott from Triple R Days <laughs> on 3AW. Natural <laughs> progression, isn't it? Well, Tony got me on to talk about Married at First Sight, which he's taking an interest in. It's got nothing to do with the fact that 3AW and Nine are both owned by the same organisation. It's Tony's own personal passion for Married at First Sight. Yes. And he got me on to talk about a horrendous best man speech that was delivered by a man by the name of Ben. Yes. For one of the contestants. And he just dropped sexual exploits and references to old chicken that then tied back into sex. I mean, the whole thing was a monstrosity. But we got it got us talking about what's a great best man speech. And, mm. and in my opinion, this is one of the great best man speeches, the one you delivered for Tony. Yeah, first let me say I'm disappointed that the very high standards of Married at First Sight have been destroyed by this speech. I mean, who would have who would have thought it? And Jules, there's no moderation. It's not like this surprised everyone. It's not like they had yeah. 14 cameras on it and that they were cutting from different directions and the script was known beforehand. <laughs> no one was expecting a series of Shakespearean sonnets. You know, <laughs> love is an ever-fixed mark. No, no. I'm, su- I'm surprised it was that good, by the way. But yes, best man speeches, it is... A lot of us get asked to do them, don't we? And it's a really, look, it's a really difficult thing to know who you're talking to, I think, with a best man speech, Tony, because A, you know the groom very well. You tend, you know, you're tempted to make him laugh. You probably got innuendo that you both enjoy, like a dirty joke that he laughed at once. You've got sexual exploits, you know, all sorts of stuff that you could bring into that. But as you just quoted from MAFS, that is a mistake. Uh, even if the bride also enjoys a bit of lewd humour, you know, the odd bawdy limerick and things like that, again, that is a mistake. Why is that a mistake? Why can't you just pitch a speech to the bride and groom alone? Because they've invited their family and their friends along. And if you upset their family and friends, you are going to upset them. So even though you're looking at the married couple, delivering a speech to them, you're not. There's Auntie Margaret, there's Uncle David, there's weird cousin Neville, there's, there could be an ex in the crowd. You know, there, there are people that they haven't seen for 10 years that are going to judge them in many, many ways. The, the catering, the dress, you know, how long the service is, and of course, Tony, the speeches. You know, that is something they're going to judge the bride and groom on. 
And the golden rule being do not mention ex-partners. Do not specifically mm. refer to sexual acts. And these, these rules were not abided by on Married at First Sight. And I said in my piece that I wrote, in the follow-up is that maybe the only time that you may do this is if the bride and groom themselves have explicitly flaunted their open relationship in the yeah. vows. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. about the only time where you should feel like you've got a license yeah. here. Yeah, unless there's a, a salad bowl and everyone's sticking their car keys <laughs> in it, um, do not be tempted to use sexual innuendo. Of course, you know, the classic thing is the best man speech, Tony. They all want to refer to the wedding night on and off like a bride's knickers or they'll be getting busy later tonight or, you know, he'll be eating something later tonight or she'll be, you know, like you don't refer to the wedding night because unless you have to, because we know most likely they're probably going to have sex. All right. But it's not about that. At the moment, it's about their relationship. It's about their relatives and and it's about balancing humor, romance, intimacy, friendship, all those things. And it's, it's really Difficult to do, but I reckon we can help people with this speech on and how you can do it, even if you're not a public speaker. Your speech is is really beautiful, and, and I I marvel at it. I just read it again this morning. The speech that you delivered for Tony Moakley on the fifteenth of March two thousand and three. So it's mm. a, a long time ago, and some of the jokes you, I would have thought might have dated a little, but <laughs> but they but they stand up, Jules. It's a strong speech, and and the thing that really struck me was that it's actually not as heavy on humour as I would have expected from someone like you. Like I would have expected you to to needle him more heavily. He's a very needleable. Yeah, and he is. So you must have been tempted to really go heavy on that. Yeah, well, it's not a twenty first speech, and of course, you know, to I did want to mock Tony. To be honest, like every instinct had to restrain me from that, because you know people don't know him like I do. And as I said before, you know, there's Kate's side of the family who was his bride, and if I do too many in jokes, it excludes them. So. You want to get some laughs, right, but you don't want to make it kind of a, a boys' night or two in because you are speaking to such a broad range of, of people there. And also, if you go joke heavy, you don't know, and you would know this, Tony, from public speaking yourself, you can have the best jokes in the world, but if the energy in the room isn't there, you don't get the laughs that you expect. So if you go in with a speech like that, laden with jokes, and for some reason it's a really, really hot day or, you know, the the catering has come out late or people are grumpy, you're left with this selection of really, really scattered jokes that that aren't landing. So that's why I think you need some, you know, some meat in facts that you can give about the relationship, romantic kind of quotes, all that sort of stuff because, you know, jokes are very organic. They either land or they miss it's all about your delivery. So I, it was really just playing it safe a bit, I think, in some ways. Can you take us back to 2003 and being asked to do this? Do you remember being asked and then do you remember the process of assembling your thoughts and the words? Yeah, I, I mean, Tony did my best man speech as well, but that was after you know this, this wedding. But I, I, I suspected that Tony would ask me because, as you say, we, we met in like year nine at school. Then we were friends right through university. We started making movies at Melbourne Uni together. Then we, like you, Tony, we joined Triple R together. We went to Triple M together, which is where we were at that stage. And, you know, we, you know, our personal and professional lives were were linked. And, of course, I was there when he met Kate because I made a filmmaking club, started one at Melbourne Uni, 
there was there was a film appreciation society, but no one was actually making films. And I realised you could just go to the university, form a club, and because there was a strong student union, that they would just give you money. You know, mm. so um, so we started making Super 8 films, you know, 16 mil films. And Tony was at Monash Uni, but I asked him to come along and be part of the club. And Kate was one of the first members. So if you think, you know, at O-Week, when new students are coming through, you have your store filmmaking club. So his bride, Kate, came up and joined. And I think I might have known her before he did. But because she was part of this club and because I was there when they met, you know, that... My first thoughts were, well, I've got to capture that moment. You know, it's not every best man that is at the meeting of the bride and groom. You know, they might have heard about it and drunk a night at the pub or a nightclub. So I really, my first thought was I have to capture that moment. I have to capture the moment when they met. And then you can't go too soppy, right? Because they had broken up and come back together, I think a couple of times. I mean, it was a bit of a tempestuous relationship. So in the early days... So I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've got to do that, but I can't, you know, dwell on that. Like you say, Tony, I can't mention that there were other men and women involved during those breakups. So you see that I don't do that. I sort of mention it and then I sort of quickly go back to their relationship. I also know that I've got to get humor involved, you know, so I, I think I do a couple of jokes about, I do a joke about a dating app, like before dating apps. This is early. I, was it eHarmony? Like, I was even going to read that. To you, Jules, yeah. because or to the audience, because we'll play the whole speech at the end. But this is a, a what I would regard as a classic opening, because this is the joke I mean. It should have dated. It shouldn't be funny, because yeah. the entire world now meets on dating apps, and so there's no shame to it. There's no um, stigma, and yet this is how you started. I'm going to start off by taking you back to where this all began. It was a Sunday afternoon in 1991 when Tony took that fateful step picked up the phone, called a harmony and gave out his credit card details, which, which still makes me laugh. I think the thing that's beautiful about it is credit card details because there's something yeah. so tawdry about credit card details, isn't there? Yeah, I, I can't believe that is still relevant because eHarmony, I think, was the only way you could date online then. And like you say, it could have been a fad, but now everyone is doing it. And I think back then it was, you know, there was still a lot of awkwardness around doing that. So the joke, it would work now, but especially then to go on eHarmony was maybe seen as a bit desperate. But yeah, no, that's, you want to start with a joke if you can, I think, just to set the tone of the speech, because that instantly engages the crowd and it sort of shows that you're, you know, that even though you're Tony's mate, you're not, it's not a hagiography. You're not going to sort of do this sort of solemn speech about what an excellent guy he was and how good, great a dad he'll be and a husband. You, you, I think the opening line does set the tone. And it's, it's really common, I think, and really solid and safe to do what you do next, which is to say the next sentence is Kate and Tony first met at a pub in Fitzroy called the Rainbow Hotel. Yeah. And those, those how we met stories, I think, are very fun and interesting and everyone loves a how we met yeah and origin story is is so important i mean you know we all love say you love the rolling stones you know there's that platform where keith richards and mick jagger first met i think there's a plaque there i don't know clapham station or something you know the origin stories of when people first meet and you know you know what happens from from that meeting but, you know, the actual, how did they meet? What, what happened? Where was it? What was said? Because, you know, th those are sliding door moments, aren't they? You, I mean, you know, when you met your wife, you know, I'm thinking, you know, at that point, you don't know that it's going to be as significant as it is. 
So you kind of replay in your mind, what was it? Was it about that moment? Should I have known? What if I was late? What if I didn't turn up? You know, what if I didn't go on that sort of match? You know, my friend didn't set me up. What if I didn't go to that dinner party? So that moment, it's great to dwell on it and, and think about it because then everyone in the crowd thinks about the moment they met their significant other. Yeah, I used the same structure with my own wedding speech for Tam, which was um, we I, I talked about because I'm famously f- didn't sort of remember the first four meetings, and it was on the fifth meeting that it gelled. And mm. I've got five significant eye defects, and so I blamed each failed meeting on you know astigmatism, amblyopia, short sightedness. <laughs> that, that was kind of my way out. But sort of finding a neat little structure or a funny structure around a. How we met. I thought I'd ask you. I didn't know you were actually there when they met. What was the story? What's the what's your memories of the actual day when Tony and Kate met? You've done a very neat paragraph on it. The memories is. I mean, Tony is a he's an Irish Catholic through and through. So he's one of those guys that just wants to tell you stories about how he's been rejected. It's the Irish Catholic way. It's sort of Angela's ashes. You know, I'm woe is me. <laughs> I remember, I'm not, can, can you swear on this podcast? Yeah. Uh, I remember once, this is Tony's favourite story. We were at the, remember there was this place called the Club on Smith Street and it was a very alternative club and, you know, we were there and Tony liked a girl over there, uh, over the other side of the room and I said, just go up and talk to her. And, and this was an age where everyone was smoking and Tony was smoking at the time. I said, well, just go up to her and ask for a light. So Tony sort of, Got up the car, he said, I'm, I'm going to go over. I'm going to do it, Jules. I'm going to do it. And he went over and said, can I have a light? And she turned and said, why don't you ask someone who gives a fuck? <laughs> Tony came back and he sort of savoured that moment. You know, oh, you know, I'm the sort of guy, that's, that's me. You know, woe is me. And he always thought, oh, you do better than women with me. I'm the guy that, you know, is the, you know, you can cue the jokes. So I think when he first met Kate, there was a nervousness around him. You know, like he wasn't a sort of guy who was going to try his luck when he was getting those sorts of responses. Yeah, yeah. But Kate has a, she, like him, she has like a sort of a, a smile on her face the whole time. She she does like the eccentric, she does like the kind of weird of Tony. So I could see that they were they were connecting. But again, like you say, it's not obvious. But I could tell that they were both really comfortable with each other, you know, when they first met. And was she involved? Because, of course, I, I knew a few of the, the films you made. They became quite cult favourites, I guess, on, in, in the Melbourne media scene. It was, did you make the um, Bill the New Zealand Social Worker yes. films in that film club? Yeah, so this is, this is how I got into media, bizarrely. So Tony and I started to make Super 8 comedy movies that we showed at Melbourne Uni. And we, we, we sort of, the premise was who would be the person that you would least want to sit next to on like an 18 hour flight. <laughs> and for some reason we said someone with a heavy New Zealand accent and someone, someone who's a social worker and wants to talk about your problems. <laughs> so it was like, we, we thought, you know, you, you're going to London and you sit next to a guy and he does the, you know, how are you? And you go, I'm good. Thanks. And then there's a pause and he goes, how are you really? <laughs> you know, and then you know, oh, this is going to be a long flight. How are you really? You know, so s- somebody wants to to cancel you and you know workshop your feelings and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, I think it worked because I think the temptation is when you've got a sort of social worker character. You know, there's a temptation to make it camp and a little bit kind of a bit affected. But with the New Zealand accent, it flattened out all that kind of campness, and it was yeah. just completely direct. 
I'm actually uh, a member of a, an enthusiastic member of a of a nudist club, and we actually have a secluded beach. Yeah. So to be able to access the beach, yeah, there should be no worries. And be at one. Yeah, uh, that would be great, right? Because yeah. I would actually be replacing my old car with this car. Right. And uh, it actually blew up at a at our last nudist meeting. Right. Uh, it was a bit unfortunate, I'm going to be honest. Uh, somebody took the radar to keep off, and he wasn't properly protected from, I guess, the geyser effect. Right. And I I just want to point out that the doctors don't know yet a lot about genital scalding, mm. and it wasn't a very unfortunate incident. So I actually got rid of that car because it had hurt another human being right. in his sacred spot. Right. Now, okay. probably the best if I get to a brochure. Do you mind if I ask, have you have you ever cried after making love? Bill, what what's this got to do with cars? Well, I'm I'm a social worker and I like to I like to get inside people if you will, just inside their emotional states. No, well I'm only here for business, so. Right. Okay. Alright. Okay. So, so where do you want me to send this brochure to, Bill? Right, I might pop in there and establish some face-to-face dialogue with you in the next week, and we can sit down and explore a number of issues that don't necessarily have to do with cars. I could perhaps talk to everybody down there, um, and we could get in a group-type situation. Well, we're not into... I'm just, we're just here for cars at the moment. So right, right. Well, I just want to say, I am here for you. Yeah, so Tony and I were making these these movies, and and Kate started making serious movies, but you know she loved the humour, you know. And Tony, even though I filmed them and edited them you know, and co-wrote them, Tony, you know, and you know his work of Guido Hatzis as well, such a good character actor, and you know he was the star of those movies. You know he was just sensational, and and I think Kate watching Tony act as well, that bonded them too. I mean, there's nothing like a creative project really to bond you together. And you gave that a paragraph in your in your Best Man speech. You talked about the power of the arts, that they were drawn to this and that this yeah. was something they shared. And you, and it was quite a sincere statement as well. I thought you might top it off with a, an easy joke, like so they can look forward to a life of poverty together or something <laughs> like that. But um, – but but yeah, it was a it was sort of a, a declaration for the arts. Yeah, well, I mean, Kate sort of loves literature, and she's you know done a lot of writing and stuff like that. And Tony obviously enjoys comedy, and you know he's in broadcasting still. They they both did really really like the arts, and I think you know there's one thing just to go and see a movie together, an art house movie, but there's another thing to actually make a movie together. You know, to actually see it edited and watch it in a cinema, and that's that's what they did, or we all did, and you know that definitely bonded them. That said, Tony, being weird Irish Catholic that he is, you know, of course, like I said, he they did break up a couple of times, and Tony did the "woe is me." I think he was always amazed that Kate came back to him. To be honest, it's probably why they got married. But yeah, I mean, you know, that they, I can see why they're together, and they have the same energy now as they had back then. And I look at the speech in front of me now, and there's actually five consecutive paragraphs where you're including her in the speech. That mm. it's not like you've come in and gone bang for your mate. You've you've actually looked at this as a union and gone, how can I include this whole yeah. room in these opening four or five paragraphs? Uh, that is vital because you know half the people at the wedding are her family and you know her friends and friends of family. So if you don't, I mean, it is a bride and groom. I was lucky to know Kate. So, 
well. I know not every best man will have that history with the bride, um, you know, or if it's a same-sex marriage, the other groom or the other bride, you know what I mean? But, yeah, you've got to include her. You have to include the partner because it's it's rude not to. And it is easy as a best man just to focus on your mate who's the groom. But it's not, like I said, it's, it's almost more for the bride, I think. Blokiness will kill a best man speech. It might work with your mates in the crowd, but it won't work, you know, with the bride, and it's certainly not going to work with the females in the room. The faces on the married at first sight crowd, I think, told that <laughs> story loud and clear. When, but you do get to paragraph six, and you do make it about Tony. I actually read it. It goes, "Let me quickly say something about Tony. I have worked with this mad Irishman for over ten years, writing and performing comedy, which in itself is a high pressure job, especially when, like us, you're not actually funny." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Having got to know Tony well over this time, can I just say he's a kind and generous lover? <laughs> Uh, I liked that It was just shocked It came out of You know And and someone Asked me When I was writing that article The other day Well what if you're not funny And You know Really What is the essence of humour I guess that slap From When you're not expecting it Really Yeah because You know Kind and generous Man is the obvious thing But to (laughs) Insert lover in there Is yeah It's just I mean it's 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 an economical gag, I guess. You know, it's it's easy to deliver. I actually thought when you were going to do a, a Tony story that the most obvious thing would be to talk aircraft because mm. I guess anyone who knows him knows that he's just a nut. He's got yeah. you know, hundreds of models out back and he sits out there and the kids aren't allowed to touch them and, and he goes to all the air shows. And I, I had one of the great days of my life making a story for Channel 7 which was about this guy called Bob Hoover who was the second guy to break the sound barrier and we mm. went out to Avalon and met Bob Hoover and it was like... Tony was meeting Mick Jagger. It was yeah. ridiculous. The guy was quaking at the knees and and you know, it was he said at the end of the day this is one of the great days of my life. I've I've met this guy. So you know, it's easy to sort of latch on to this this eccentricity and this passion that he has, which is quite infectious. You didn't really go down the aircraft route. I couldn't really connect it to Kate in many ways. I think that was the reason. But I mean, I could have easily have done it. I mean, I the story that comes to mind is when we were on Triple M together, I don't know how we did it. We got, a, I think it was the Grand Prix, and one of the F-18 pilots came into the studio, you know, which is Tony's dream. An actual pilot is flying, doing flying over the Grand Prix in Melbourne. And it was a live interview. And I remember, like, I just asked a question and paused, and then Tony was, Tony was just sitting there gazing at him like this, <laughs> like a love-struck kind of groupie. And, and I reckon I asked 80% of the questions <laughs> because Tony was so afraid of asking a question that he would think is silly or stupid or there was an error in any way. He, he just he would rather just sit there and, and watch. And, and that's, like you say, it's, it's not just a, a love of planes. It's, it's an absolute obsession. He once went to that, you know, there's that place in Arizona where they house all the B-52s, you know, they warehouse all the yeah. planes out in the desert there. Tony once went there and he got off the plane, he got in a cab and he was on the cab from the airport, you know, to this, this airplane graveyard and he realised he hadn't even picked up his luggage, like it was still going around on the, <laughs> like so obsessed was he to get to this grave, he just straight off the plane, straight into the cab, halfway there. I mean, he, he is insane about airplanes. I don't know. I think when you know someone too well, maybe it's too easy a hit or maybe because I couldn't connect it to Kate. I, I don't know why I didn't do it, but it, it is something that I could have easily have done. 
I guess one of the decisions you were making was one relating to length. And, and I, I look at this speech and, and why I regard it as one of the more perfect best man speeches is that, that maybe you would have put the, the aircraft story in, but then you're dragging the speech out to 12 and 15 and 20 minutes yeah. and beyond. Whereas this is such a, a tight little speech. You, you probably finished this one within 10 minutes, I think, even oh, with easily. laughter. Yeah, maybe seven or eight. But that's the big fear. I mean, people have a fear of weddings with the length of the speech. You know, the, the father of the bride is, is so guilty of this. If he's had a few ports or whatever, you know, the rambling kind of, I think, you know, they met in in um, Melbourne. It was at the, the Rainbow or was it the Standard Hotel or maybe it was this hotel. And then you're like, you know, and, you know, just that it's not indulgent. Because people, they're not professional public speakers, but unless you have it prepared and unless you should time your speeches and, and if you're unsure of any bit, just cut it out, you know, because no one's going to be angry that your speech was too short at a wedding, you know, unless it's literally, you know, three sentences, you know, or <laughs> yeah. don't do haiku poetry, but no one's, you know, people are going to be angry if you go too long. You know, it's like a stand-up comedian. I mean, stand-up comedian can come on and do a great routine in, in seven minutes eight minutes so why does a best man or any wedding speech have to go for more than 10 and you get to the the kind of the heart of the speech i mean the jokes are alternating with the heart with the with the heart i feel like there's sort of a, a lovely balance going on and then you get on to sort of laughter and i always love a great quote and I always tell people if they're writing a eulogy or a or a best man speech or a wedding speech just to you can just get out like you can dismount like the mary lou retton yes, on, the, yes. on the on the vault you know if you if you've just got a little quote or a quote from a movie or some poetry or even a line of commentary from a sports commentator or just anything that's a that's third party material can kind of give you a bit of a lift and and this last section of the speech you go heavy on the third party material yeah, well, I think there's a quote like laughter is the shortest distance between two people that I use, which was just a short quote, which I really like. Uh, it really suited Tony and Kate because they do laugh together. And then I went, yeah, a, a bit of a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. I, I don't know why I, I chose that really. I, I just, I, I thought that, I mean, it, at its heart, this is meant to be a romantic moment. You know, I know a lot of people there are probably, you know, looking at their watches, wanting to get home, or some people just wanting to get drunk, or maybe they want to crack onto someone at their table or whatever. You know, people are there for different reasons. But for the bride and groom, you have to you have to make it a romantic moment because what what's the point of spending all the money and having this moment unless romance is attached? And poets capture romance really well. But you've got your obvious, you know, you can go to your I sound like a footy coach. You, you can go to your William Blakes, or you can go to your Yates's. Sam Coleridge. You can go to your Sylvia Plath. You, you go to your Mark Yates. Yeah, you, go, you, <laughs> you can go to your William Shakespeare's or whatever. You know, you can go to a you know Jared Manley Hopkins. Yeah, I, I like E.E. E. Cummings. I don't know why. I, I think because his love poetry is is kind of a little bit surrealist. It's romantic with not actually talking about swooning and love and true love and whatever. And it's it's pretty easy to recite that poem. There's no oh thou'st where art that you know. There's not too many thou's or whence or you know like if you're going to go Chaucer or Shakespeare or John Donne or something, get you got to get your Middle English right <laughs> before you go in there, and you're probably going to fuck it up, you know. So E. E. Cummings, short words, good syntax. It's just got a beautiful feel to it without being too schmaltzy. I think. 
I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. Lots of brackets, lots of mm. lowercase letters, odd punctuation, beautiful sentiment. Do you remember finding it? Or is it is this the pre-Google era? Would you have just cranked the uh, love poem into no, some search engine and see what comes out? It was. You know what? I've used it like in dating previously, like I'd, I'd kind of <laughs> sent bits of that, you know, you experiment a bit and E.E. E. Cummings always hit the mark because like it's, so it's not on too- your tin- It's on your Tinder profile. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. It was my, it was my <laughs> eHarmony kind of, <laughs> it was my profile pick. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I've always loved E.E. E. Cummings. Yeah. It is weird with the brackets and the punctuation and no uppercase, but I, I just thought that it was, it, it's an, it's not a formal poem. And it wasn't a formal occasion. You know, the speech is meant to be informal in its delivery and its feel, I think, a best man speech. So E.E. Cummings just, you know, encapsulates a little bit of informality. And do you remember the delivery moments? Is this, you know, you knew you were sailing along pretty well at this point and and you felt good? Was it? Is there anything from the from standing at the podium that you remember from that day? I remember, like, good laughter, you know, and even thinking I probably could have made this a bit funnier. Because it was it was a speech where I wasn't raised. I mean, I was. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a sort of formal reception. It, I was sort of standing. Oh God, where was it? Is that is that the Heidelberg Art Centre? You know that place says Heidelberg, and there's all those sculptures out there. So it was, Heidi. Yes. Yeah. So it was there, but it was outside, and you know there were, you know there was a roof there, but we were drinking and eating. So I was standing on a patio, and everyone was standing around me, kind of thing. But I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be hard to deliver this speech because I'm not raised on a podium or a platform. But the laughter, you know, because everyone was quite close to me, but the laughter was kind of so generous and I could feel that it was going really well. When I went to that last bit, part of me wished that I'd sort of, part of me wished I'd kind of ended with a series of jokes. But then as I was delivering it, like you say, I mean, you can hear laughter. You can't hear romance. And I thought, well... It's best to end with something like you say, you know, with something that you know is great. It's great writing and it ends on a romantic note. You know, that's the safest thing to do as a best man, I think. And do you remember writing this thing? Were you, uh, you're obviously a skilled extemporizer and, and ad libber and that's your job nowadays on radio. Would, would you have had bullet points for this or was this a very carefully written piece? I think you have the full written speech, but you memorize it as much as you can. You know, I don't know. I mean, everyone has different ways. Some people just go bullet points. Some people, and I think this is a mistake at a wedding, just have some points in their heads and get up and riff. I, I wouldn't do that. So I wrote the full speech. So we always had it there. But yeah, you practice it many, many times. So when it comes to delivering the jokes or the sentiment, you know, you don't have to look down. But of course, with the poem, you know, I think I did read it. But there's certain there's a certain kind of theatricality about reading a poem you know if you're reading from something it's actually quite good to have it printed there in front of you because you know you're quoting from something so yeah no I rehearsed it a lot and that's the other good thing about not having a speech too long because then you can you know get it in your head and even though you can't recite it once you sort of get one line it leads to the other it leads to the other and especially the jokes they sort of get you know you you really sort of burn them into your memory I think Tony. So I reckon there's different tactics you can employ and bullet points can work well for someone who's really 
rehearsed and, and memorised a speech. But it is suitable at these sort of occasions to have something quite formal. And sometimes that formality of a line that's written actually lands really well. Mm. Uh, whereas the sort of Amar, yeah, he's a great guy. Da, da, yeah. That sort of that's better for why he's been, a, you know, when you're farewelling a coach at the end of footy training or something. But for a wedding, it's nice to have the neatness and and for people who can write a little bit, you know, the beauty of phrases. Yeah, and you know, and I think people who are used to public speaking, like you and I, I mean, we I write out a full speech and then edit it. So if you're not a used to public speaking, I mean, do do the same thing. I mean, things don't just come off the top of your head all the time. I mean, you know, we use, I'm used to speaking now and I can get up and speak, but, you know, having the document, I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation unless I wrote it down. If it was a series of bullet points, I mean, it would just be lost. So, yeah, always, if you can, write it out in full. That way you can also time it. You know, you can do the speech with a stopwatch and see how long it goes because, you know, as you alluded to, Tony, speeches always go longer than they look on paper. You might look like a page, an A4 page, and think, oh, this is a couple of minutes. It's probably seven or eight minutes. So if you don't write it in full, you don't deliver it, you don't edit it, you know, I think you're going to lose something. I also think that if you you are going to read a speech, and I think most people who don't speak a lot probably would would read a best man speech, that the best way, apart from reading it over and over and rehearsing over and over to, to get quality into it, is to print it out really big. So yes. I think it's a really easy thing for people to do. And so many people have tiny little 12-point type on their speeches and it's single-spaced and and makes it so hard to do that natural raise of the eyes and that inclusion of the audience. And, and, and yet double-spaced 18 point, I always say, is a minimum. And then you kind of, you're in the game. And never go double-sided. You don't want to be turning <laughs> over pay. Always single-sided, double-spaced. You know, even if it's easy on a clipboard, do it that way. But you want to make it easy to turn the pages over. And, and like you say, I mean, you can, you, you can, you've got to make eye contact with the audience, obviously. And there are moments that you can do that. I mean, if you are recounting a story when they met or something like that, if you've got it in your head, you can look up and deliver that. So it doesn't have to be word perfect as it is on the page. But then you look down and know where, you, where you've got to go next. So it's, it's a great crutch. And it's like... You know, if you write something down, you remember it as well. You know, I, I remember I talked to, I remember there was one kid who was trying to cheat in year 11 science and we had to sort of, it was, it was a test on the periodic table. So he got like a pen and he wrote the entire periodic table on his ruler and then it wasn't big enough. So then he wrote it all again and I think he stack, stuck it on the inside of, you know, that compass sort of kit you had yeah. or whatever. And but because he'd been so... He's been so he's been trying to cheat so professionally. By the time he did both of them, he pretty much remembered the periodic table. And so he didn't have to cheat. So this is the thing: just write, 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 edit, write, rehearse, write, and you will pick up more than you think. We touched on this at the start, but what what shouldn't you do? What are the biggest mistakes well, you could make in a best man speech? Well, I think you've always there's alcohol, right? So the most common question i think any comedian gets or anyone giving a speech is how much alcohol should you consume should you be completely sober should you have a light beer whatever look i i'm not really a big you know i think that if if your nerves are really really bad and you are shaking and you're sweating or whatever a light beer might might do the trick all right and mid-strength at most but I think unless you're a really confident speaker it's best to lay off the grog before you give the speech because you know, alcohol does give you a false sense of security. And I think anyone who does public speaking, even now, I, I mean, I'm not 
terrified on radio anymore because I'm so used to the unfamiliar surroundings or whatever. But you know, I, I had to stand up in a staff meeting just before and and, and speak to the to all the staff members. I, I was nervous because I know these people. I work with them every day. They hear me on radio every day. But you know, I'm nervous giving a speech, and I think that's how you should feel giving a speech. So the temptation to kind of drink to get rid of your nerves, you can do it to a tiny extent to take the edge off them. But if you keep drinking, thinking, oh, I'm going to be more relaxed. This speech is going to be better. That's that's wrong. It's going to be worse the more you drink. Well, what do you think? Because the problem is, Tony, alcohol is available at weddings. It's on your table. Someone's got a tray with a stubby on it. You know, do you, do you think alcohol is a good crutch? I don't think – I'm with you on that. A little bit is fine. And I, I think it also depends. You know your own relationship with alcohol. So that mm. if you have high tolerance and, and one beer or two beers over the hours – the, before the speeches, you know that that won't affect you a great deal. But it's amazing how even a small amount of alcohol can just cause the tongue mm. to get a bit lazy or something yeah. like that. And so it, it's not great to sound a little bit tipsy, I think. You know, so yeah. you, you know yourself well, though. So you, you'll know whether, whether you, how much you should have or whether it should be nothing. Yeah, and you need to project project more than you think in a speech. I think alcohol can kind of, you know, just sap your energy a little bit. You actually do need energy for a speech because, like you say, you need to look around the crowd. That's the other thing. Eye contact is really important because the audience will pay more attention. If you think, if you're looking up and scanning the room, you know, and, and looking like you're really enjoying the speech, they'll you know, hopefully give the attention back to you. And looking over at the bride and groom, making eye contact – that gives you confidence, I think, to scan a room, but it also engages the audience. So eye contact, yeah, not as much alcohol. And make, make sure your mic's on and you haven't got it too close. But that, I mean, that's really hard for someone who's not a professional speaker, though. Well, that's right. The temptation is to go close and then you pop mm. on all the different sounds. I, I actually, that's my, more. I'm often more too close than not too far away. I hate too far away. Mm. Too quiet's terrible. But then Ted Burt Bailey's been on this podcast, Julian, saying he, he will never use a microphone if he if he at all can avoid it. You know, and I quite like microphones. I like the kind of authority yeah, a microphone provides. But but Ted Bailey says he likes to fill the room, you know. So it's it is different approaches. The other thing I think you're tempted to do if you're not a proficient public speaker is to say how nervous you are. I'm not used to speaking or, you know, or this is difficult for me. I, I don't think you should do that. I mean, people, most people understand that you're not Barack Obama, you're not friggin' Martin Luther King. So, so, you know, people know you're not a public speaker. They probably assume you are a bit nervous. If it becomes relevant, like you drop a glass of beer, you know, down your front or something, yeah, you can say that you're nervous. But I think, you know, to try and disarm a crowd by saying, oh, you know, a bit nervous, haven't, haven't spoken much before. And, you know, that, that you don't need to say that, I, I don't think, because it, it's sort of priming the audience to think that's a bad speech. Yeah, I agree. Don't own up to that. And and I thought also with the writing process that I had a, a nervous speaker ring me up who was giving a eulogy recently and, and the thing I got him to do, and I think it really helps with these sort of life speeches, mm. that to, just to write down five favourite stories, five for the groom, five for the bride, five for the couple, mm. and then start cherry-picking the two or three that are your absolute favourites, maybe one from each. Mm. And suddenly, even someone who doesn't feel confident and doesn't think they're funny 
people naturally engage with stories. Yes. So it may, it may not matter that you whether or not you are funny. Your material, the fact that these are life pinnacle type stories that you know are winners because you've all laughed at them lots of times or they are just beautiful if they're not funny, then you know that's a good way to, to sort of start your writing process. I think too. And you've also got to think about the tone. What's the tone for a best man speech? Is it kind of raucous? Is it raw? Is it tearjerker? Is it whatever? Uh, I was thinking about this before I came out. I, I think that the description I think for a best man speech, this is what I think is gentle. Gentle. It's gent- It's it's hinting at love. It's hinting at humour. Like you say, it's telling affectionate stories. And, and gentle and loving is a way. But I keep coming back to gentle because if you hit anything too hard in a best man speech, you know, it can be abrasive. And lo- like you say, there's, there's people there who are going to judge your speech. Even gentle on the length, you know, like you said, under 10 minutes. There's people there who are going to, to judge your speech. And you, you sort of don't stick your head out above the parapet in, in any way with lewd humour or going too comedy, going too romantic. Just mix it up and be gentle. And so you've known Tony now for an extra 21 years. If you were giving the next big speech for him, is there a favourite story you'd definitely Im- include from 2003 to 2024? Um, God, there are so many Tony Moclair stories. I mean, it's... it's can I say it's surprising that he's still married? He is in the entertainment industry. I mean, what's he doing? He's ruining, he's ruining our reputation. Ah, oh, Tony Moclair stories. My God. Um, I mean, the thing is, I'm spoilt for choice. Um, I, I remember once Tommy Lee. So Tommy Lee, of course, came in to the studio and we were um, interviewing him. And this is at a time when he, he was, uh, he'd been in jail, I think, for something, and he was dating Pamela Anderson. This is Baywatch. But he was promoting this kind of new single. I think it was Methods of Mayhem was his band. And when, when a star comes into a studio, the publicist tries to dictate the questions. I mean, you would know this. She said, we want to stay on his new album, on his new single. We don't want any questions about Motley Crue. We don't want any questions about Pamela Anderson. And we certainly don't want any questions about his time in jail and then there's a presenter you're like well what's the point you know what i mean that's exactly what the audience wants to know they don't care about his new album or his new single that that's all they want you to talk about so we're doing the interview and we asked about motley crew i mean it's triple m i mean that's pretty much a carol you know that's a hymn of triple m you know so we're asking about Motley, and you can see he's getting irritated because he doesn't want to talk about Motley Crue. But, you know, you have to ask the questions your listeners would want you to ask. And he starts to, like, he starts to drift away from the mic, and he's doing that thing where he's away from the mic, and he's, and he's got his arms crossed, and he's just having a sulk. And, you know, we're live on air, so you've got to do something right. You can't, you know, he's just... So, so Tony leans into the microphone and says, Tommy, did you miss... Pamela Anderson's breasts when you're in prison (laughs) (laughs) and he just he exploded and and he stormed out of the studio and he literally said fuck you whatever and he he stormed out of the studio and he cancelled every other um every other interview on Triple M like he did that thing I'm not talking to anyone on this network that you know they insulted me whatever and then Andrew Denton called me directly and I, because he was doing the Sydney Breakfast Show, and I thought, oh my God, you know, like, um, you, you know, Motley Crew one trip, Andrew Denton, he's cancelled and he's going to tell me off. Because I didn't know him that well at that stage. 
And he said, I heard what happened with Tommy Lee at your show. And I went, oh, no, I'm sorry about that. And he's just going, can I thank you from the bottom of my heart <laughs> that I do not have to talk to Tommy Lee? <laughs> Whatever you're doing, keep doing it, you know. so. Oh, so well, Andrew Deaton has been a great supporter of this podcast. He is a, a paid-up member at news.speakola.com. So thank you, Andrew, for getting behind us. But that is just a, a magnificent story and does it does show Tony's courage, like, that takes a lot of courage, you know, to be yeah. told not to do something and just to go, nah, we're not going to be dictated like oh. that. There, there is no point unless we throw this very wild haymaker. <laughs> well, the other one was Green Day. If we go tell another Tony story, yeah. the courage he has, Green Day were in the studio and they were stoned. So it was not as if they were rude, but they were so stoned that they were sort of giggling at their own sort of answers to our questions and stuff. And the interview was going nowhere. And one of the sort of coherent responses we got was, oh, they'd just been playing in Japan, so they'd come to Australia. And the interview was not going well. So Tony says, oh, so you were performing to, like, the Japanese, you know, the grandfathers who killed your grandfathers during World War II. <laughs> he went into this whole thing. People who were viciously um, gunning down GIs. So as Americans, it, did that come up at all when you were playing? And you could see, because they were stoned, they were getting freaked out. They were looking at each other. And that question alone engaged them back into the interview because they kind of didn't know what Tony was going to ask next. So he, he does have that. He's got more courage than me in that way. He can, yeah, he can take an interview sideways, Tony. And that night, do you have any memories post-speech? Did you get cheered out of there? Good dancing? <laughs> meet the love of your life? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't meet the love of my life then. No, I don't. I don't have. I mean, it was, it was just a really, really fun wedding. And, you know, a lot of people that were there, they're still friends with. But, I mean, I just, I mean, Tony has like eight brothers and sisters. You know, I grew up with them as well. So I just remember speaking to them. But but I remember, yeah, I remember the speech went down really well. I remember his mum was really happy with the speech because Tony's mum, you know, she's very Irish Catholic and quite religious as well. And Tony does really like, you know, a lot of, like everyone, he really loves his mum. So that was also on my mind if I was to go to Lude. I think his mum especially would have been a little bit hurt and I loved her and I knew her for many years too. So everyone was happy, Tony. And that's well, the thing with the best man speech. Everyone was happy. Well, that, that is a credit to you, Jules. And if anyone, Rita Moclair, the famous Rita Moclair, Tony's mother, she's actually eulogised on Speakola as well by John Kelly, Tony's brother. Now, that is a beautiful speech as well. So people can look that up on Speakola. Did you have a, a long best man speech career Jules have you done a few I've done a few well I did it it wasn't a best man but I know you've got it up on your site for Kate and Pete Kate Langrook and Pete yeah, it was kind of like a master of ceremonies kind of speech that I did for them they asked me to do a speech I don't yeah I did I did one other for a friend but you know what I did a lot of 21st speeches a lot of 21st speeches because you can when you're 21 you can actually just Get it. it doesn't have to be your best friend. You want it to be funny, right? So you get the funny guy that you know, even if they're not a great friend. Because 21st speeches, I mean, I'm sure you've done that before. They are, I mean, that's a completely different conversation, isn't it? Well, it is. And I would, I would actually credit the 21st tour that I did in 1993 as getting me into media. Like it was really, it really was. I did so many of them, and probably built my skills and my confidence and all that sort of thing through the twenty-first speeches. Yeah, yeah, I did did so many of them as well. But I mean, I mean, we've all got twenty-first speeches that we've never forgotten as well. You know, yeah. 
but well, the same rules apply. I'm afraid, like the even though you sort of think that you free free up the shoulders a bit at the 21st, there's such a temptation to go too far, and people almost see it as a badge of honour to embarrass. Yeah, you know, and, I, and and I think that's a real mistake. You still got to remember, 93 year old great auntie Dot. You know, she's there. And there there was someone, I went to one, I'll tell this story. This is a very short story, but it was a very short speech. It was Brendan, a friend of mine, and he's from Birragara kind of regional area. And it was a speech, 21st in Melbourne. So it was a mixture of kind of country people, guys that he was working with, whatever. And, and his two best friends got up and they had a slideshow and uh, they, they flicked on the slide projector and we only got two slides. So the first slide was, you know, 21 years ago, Mr. and Mrs., you know, um, Darcy gave birth to this. And there was a picture of, of, of him as a baby. And they said, and 21 minutes ago, Brendan gave birth to this. And it was a picture of a turd in the bottom of a toilet bowl. <laughs> and the, the and dad... That was it. Hit the projector da- lights, pull yeah, out the, the plug. Yeah, the plug was pulled out. There was still about 10 slides to go. And I've always wanted to know where that was going. But, yeah, that's not what to do on a 21st speech. Have <laughs> a picture of a turd in a toilet bowl. Well, Jules, we can, we can hear you every morning on ABC Adelaide Breakfast. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for getting Speak Ola on when speeches drift into the news. You got a favourite all-time speech? Oh, I mean, I was listening... I'd have to say, and this is so cliche, the Martin Luther speech, I had a dream. And I like it even more because I was listening to a podcast on that, that the I had a dream wasn't really even part of the speech. Like it was something that he'd been doing as a kind of preacher and he kind of brought it in almost to save the speech at the end. And I, I love that about the speech that no matter how the speech is going, you know, you can always you can create history by just, you know, by bringing something in and just the energy and the way that intonation goes. That That's probably, I mean, just because of how it's been, how it's resonated through history, that speech. But I love the story of that speech, that you would know more about it than me, then it kind of, it's, it's almost an accidental part of the speech he intended to give. Yeah, he extemporised on the stage. And there's some mythology around it as to whether Mahalia Jackson, the great... Mm. Jazz singer said, "Tell him about the yes. Tell him about the dream, yeah. Martin." Now, I had Claiborne Carson on. On I think it was episode fifteen about of this podcast, and he said he doesn't think that happened. You can't hear it on the audio. Mm. It would have been caught by the audio, uh, but it's a great part of the story because basically Mahalia Jackson knew that that Dr. King had this material to use a comedian's term. He he was going around the South talking mm. about the dream. And she knew that it was electrifying, and Dr. King did as well. And the moment arrived for it. And so the last five minutes is a an ad lib. And also something I didn't know, it, it was a really hot day, and he was on right down the bill. So, you know, this was not the opening act. This was, wasn't even the second act. I mean, this he came on when people were hot and they were tired, and he still kind of delivered that speech. And, and that's maybe why I love it, because of the mythologizing, you know, and the fact that, you know, even Kennedy was watching that, you know, and thought, you know, Jesus, this is a good speech. And JFK was a great speaker himself. So, yeah, that, that's what I'd nominate, but it's, it's hard to pick. Well, the, the people of the UK just voted it the greatest speech of, of all time. So... There's plenty of us in there. I think I'd go with the same one, to be honest. So there's plenty of us in the fan club. And um, yeah, but it's a pleasure to speak to you, Jules. Thanks so much for coming on. 
Oh, it's been great. A lot of fun, Tony. Cheers. Julian Schiller is a good Hawthorne man. I'm half inclined to get over to Gather Round in Adelaide to see the Hawks Pies clash that weekend. And Jules will tell you that you should get a copy of 1989, The Great Grand Final, written by me. And you can buy it directly from me, tonywilsonauthor.com. It's $35 plus postage. And there's a discount. If you are a Speakola subscriber, you get a discount code and you can become a Speakola subscriber through news.speakola.com. Well, there was no audio of this beautiful speech delivered at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Heidelberg in 2003, and so we've created some. I got Jules to stand up in the ABC studio and read it out again, and he did a great job of it, and it's just terrific to have a record of it. So here he is, Julian Schiller, reading his best man speech for Tony Moclair. Hello, everyone. I'm going to start by taking you back to where this all began. Sunday afternoon, it was 1991, and Tony took that fateful step, picked up the phone, called eHarmony, and gave out his credit card details. Kate and Tony first met at a pub in Fitzroy called the Rainbow Hotel. It was at a meeting for the Melbourne University Filmmaking Club, of which they were both members. Soon after, they went on a date which had good aspects and bad aspects. It was bad because Tony spent most of the evening bitching about an ex-girlfriend with whom he had recently separated. It was good, however, because this prevented him from mentioning military aircraft for the entirety of the evening. It's quite poetic that Tony and Kate met in the film club because that experience, in many ways, changed their lives. Making short Super 8 films inspired them both to seek careers in the creative arts. Kate was later accepted into VCA to study filmmaking and Tony began to perform comedy spots on 3RRR. So you could say, on that Sunday afternoon in the Rainbow Hotel, Tony and Kate, without actually knowing it, discovered what they wanted to do with their lives and who they wanted to share it with, which in itself is quite remarkable. But then again, Tony and Kate's relationship is quite remarkable. They've known each other for 12 years and at times been more on and off than Mick Jagger's undies. But the connection they shared never dimmed. Those who knew them always prayed this day would come, where both of them would realise what was obvious to everyone, that from that day in 1991, they always had been and always would be deeply in love. Let me quickly say something about Tony. I've worked with this mad Irishman for over 10 years, writing and performing comedy, which in itself is a high-pressure job, especially when, like us, you're not actually funny. Having got to know Tony well over this time, can I just say he's a kind and generous lover? No, I'd like to say that Tony is one of the most centred, most moral, most supportive and most loyal people I have ever met. Tony loves, values and respects the most important people in life, his family, his friends, and now most of all, his new bride, Kate. Once early on in our careers, Tony missed the 21st birthday of his brother, Joe, due to a meeting with Channel 10 in Sydney. Tony was deeply upset after this and vowed never again to put the needs of his family and friends second to anything. And to this day, 10 years later, I've never known him to do so. 
I was trying to think of a phrase to sum up Tony and Kate's relationship, and the one thing that instantly sprang to mind was laughter and love. Tony and Kate are always laughing, whether they're teasing each other or joking about the day's events or photographing each other naked in police custody, they love a good laugh. Victor Borges said, Laughter is the closest distance between two people, and Tony and Kate are proof of that. Tony and Kate are so natural around each other because they enjoy each other's differences and they laugh at them. And if they decide to breed with all that laughter and love, I can think of no better environment for a child to be born into. If that offspring dislikes airplanes, however, I can think of no worse environment for a child to be born into. I also wanted to say something about love, since this occasion is basically a ceremony which celebrates love in its most pure form. And as love is a slightly mystical and magical force, I think it's best summed up by poetry. So I'd like you to read you a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. There once was a man from Nantucket. No. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling, I fear. No fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than a soul can hope or a mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. That's the end of the episode. Thank you, Jules Schiller. He is the host of ABC Breakfast, talking to the luminaries of Australian political, artistic, sporting life, including people like Peter Malinowskis, Premier of South Australia. He's been on this podcast. Peter Malinowskis' election night speech was a gem. Check that episode out. But thank you, Julian. Thank you, David Bridie, who's playing shows, I think, over in Adelaide in the next couple of weeks. Check David Bridie's dates out. He does all the music on this podcast. Thank you to subscribers wherever you find me, whether that's through the donate button on speakola.com or whether you click upgrade to paid when you get the newsletter. That's news.speakola.com. Great to be back in 2024. Share the episode with someone you think might enjoy it. Maybe someone who's delivering a best man speech. That's it for this one. We'll be back soon with the next one. Catch you then.